Kevin Martin down in Calgary. Are you getting lonely, Kevin? How, how many days have you been in the bubble now? I don't know. That's a good question, Jimmy. I think it's been about uh, 15 days so far, I believe. Yeah, good. How many games have you done so far? We're about uh, maybe eight games in of many. It's Groundhog Day every day. You wake up, you're going two more games. And but I'll tell you what, this, uh, this World Championship's been interesting. Warren, you're a no-bubble guy. You're still out in BC. And uh, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm out here in the BC bubble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's roll around, fellas. Last rock. Eighth end. Up by two. I don't think I'm. I don't think I'm white. I don't think you are either. Oh, oh. it's clean. Oh, don't oh. kill it, Ben. Don't kill it. Line's really good. Line's good. Right on the button, guys. Right Last here, guys. stone for Kevin Martin. They want it on the button. The sweepers are watching it. Fans are on their feet. Kevin Martin goes out as a champion. Cuts him to one. He will win his final Grand Slam, taking the Players' Championship. Talk about putting an exclamation mark at the end of a career. All he had to do was cut him down. Kevin Martin can celebrate. He is a champion. Okay, here we go, fellas. Uh, what a week. What a month, actually, it's been for curling with the Scotties, the Briars, the mixed doubles. And, of course, now the World Championships are on uh, down in Calgary. Lots happening there. I just looked at the standings. Canada's right in the thick of it, Kevin. Uh, I see a bunch of teams at 5-2. and two. I think only maybe Norway has only one loss. Uh, what's your take, Kev? Well, isn't it interesting? And uh, I guess when it comes to uh, World Championships, uh, and anytime you've got uh, regional representation in, in events... Uh, it's all about who you play first. So you just mentioned that uh, as we're doing this uh, recording of this podcast, Norway's at 5-1, and one, but listen to who Norway has to play yet. Japan, Switzerland, U.S., Italy, RCF, and Canada. They have to play all the front runners. So I can see Norway you know, going easily to, to five losses, four for sure, but five, maybe even six. So they just have all the toughies to play going forward in Italy. You know, you hear a lot about Italy, and I really like them, but they've still got to play Canada, Scotland, <laughs> Norway, and RCF. Mm-hmm. RCF, let's talk about them for a second. They've still got to play the U.S., Canada, and Scotland, and Norway, Italy. So it's kind of funny. It depends who you play when, and uh, Norway and RCF got to play a lot of the teams that are now on the bottom. You know, and the other teams, you know, we, we thought, well, geez, you know, Japan, uh, we thought they'd do better. They're two and four right now. Well, hang on. They have a four-game stretch of Denmark, Netherlands, Korea, China. Mm-hmm. They play the bottom four. They could easily win all four of those and be right back into it. So, you know, it's been really exciting. The huge round robin really leaves um, just a, a slew of opportunities open for every team. It's just a matter of getting on a roll at the right time. And that's always, of course, the trick. Monday was kind of cool. Watching, I watched that game. Canada was down 8-3, Warren, in, uh, going into the eighth end. Scores four to make it 8-7, and then steals two in the ninth to go ahead 9-8, and then lose in the tenth end. Boy, pretty incredible stuff, Warren, what's going on, how everyone's jockeying now for position. What's your take? 
quite a week so far. I think it's very balanced. I, I can't believe the fact that a lot of those teams are at the bottom of the ladder are coming up and knocking off some of the top teams. So it, it's pretty balanced. I think a good example is Canada goes out yesterday morning and destroys the U.S. in about uh, five ends. Then they go out last evening and uh, they have that difficult game against Korea and actually lose it. And it's the first time ever that Korea has beaten Canada in the World Championship. So I look at the balance. I mean, it's much different than see the Briar or the Scotties, where you know very well those bottom teams in both those events, they're not going to knock off too many of the top teams. But man, in this event, those teams down in 12th, 13th, 14th place, they're uh, they're coming up strong all of a sudden. I look particularly yesterday, Germany had two very good days. And I, I watched that team, I think it was on, uh, on Monday. I thought, boy, they're better than their record is right now. And uh, they certainly showed that yesterday. So I look at it being quite balanced. I think there's eight teams very much in the running, and uh, I agree with Kevin. Some of those top teams have some pretty tough games ahead of them, but I think it's going to be a, a phenomenal finish. Kevin, of course, your son, uh, Karik, curls for Team Canada with, with Brendan Botcher. Have you talked to your son at all, uh, Kevin? What's he saying about their team, and, and what do you see, Kevin, so far from Team Canada? Yeah, from Team Canada, I think they're doing pretty well. Like, obviously, this is their first time at a world championship and I think uh, Team Korea took them a little bit by surprise but that can happen uh, these teams are quite good uh, I have to think about the uh, Netherlands when they uh, they played Canada on Sunday afternoon at two o'clock and uh, and gave them all they could handle the skip of uh, Netherlands team shot 86 luckily uh, Brendan Botcher shot 88 and <laughs> snuck out the win and then Netherlands um, I actually called one of their games I forget who it was against the skipper shot 100. The Netherlands skip shot 100%. So to Warren's point, in the World Championships, the bottom teams are, yes, they are the bottom teams, but they can come up with, well, 100%. You can't, can't beat that. It doesn't matter who you play. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is really tough to call the wins and losses. And, and of course, when you've got a round robin that goes 13 games, there's 14 teams in this World Championship, it is unpredictable. So I talked to Kark about their team and... Uh, he thinks they're playing pretty well, pretty consistent. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just a matter of sometimes, you know, you even shoot in the low to mid 80s, but you come in out against a red hot team Korea and they just, they're just all over you early in the game. And, you know, for them, they did come back, but, uh, but Brennan, unfortunately, just bounced off on his last freeze and team Korea made a good one. And there you are. There's an L. So you got to be careful. You can probably afford with the log jam, you can easily afford the three losses. I cannot see Norway not getting to four or five. Uh, so I think three losses probably gets you first place. That's hard to say. <laughs> you know, that's hard for me to imagine that, right. you know, in a round robin, three losses is probably going to get you first place, but it looks that way. Can you put your finger on Kev? Why Brendan Botcher's numbers were way down in that game against Korea. I, I mean, right out of left field, you know, he was clipping along there. Can you pinpoint why he curled so poorly Kev in that game yeah wouldn't it be interesting to know why a person goes four rounds of golf shoots 66 to 68 goes out the next weekends and first round shoots an 81 I don't know it's funny sports wonderful that way you just there I don't think you can ever just absolutely well this is why it happened because you know what Jimmy if if you could know exactly why a person has a bad outing it would never happen because you just wouldn't do that right <laughs> you know it's just not that easy but it was shocking to see the first few ends um all the misses that happened and maybe it was because you know you blow a team that's really really good like the usa out earlier in the day and now you go out against team green you go well, this will be an easy one boom 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 and then team yeah. korea just <laughs> you know makes everything for the first half of the game and you find yourself down a bunch warren in your career did that ever happen to you guys whipping through a, an event 
and then go bad all of a sudden in one game? Oh, that's happened to everybody. That's just the, that's the way sport is. You're going to have your good days. You're going to have your bad days. Something a little bit goes wrong early and all of a sudden, uh, because curling is a very fine line at that level. You don't have to miss by much to all of a sudden be in some major trouble. So it's happened to everybody. Lots to talk about on the show today. We want to discuss this round robin. You know, they got to play 13 games. That's big. Uh, should it be more? Should it be less? We want to get your guys' opinion on that. Also, Mike Harris is coming on the show. Uh, Kevin, he's your broadcasting partner now. And of course, Kev, he beat you uh, in the Olympic trials, I guess, because he went on to curl and win a silver medal in 1998. And did he just nip you by one, Kevin, the Olympic trials final? Yeah, and uh, I had an actual come around in uh, in the last end, outturn come around. If I get by the guard, he would have had to draw a button, full button to uh, to win, but I just touched the guard and and that was it velcro rips but yeah they had an amazing <laughs> week that week back in 1997 and uh and you know what mike would have taken the gold i think but he ended up getting the flu so we want to talk to him about that because uh, what a what a crazy time back in 1998 in nagano great guy absolutely wonderful guy he used to spend some time in the patch too kev and you know how i like those guys so let's get after it warren uh the world championships in calgary 14 teams that's a lot of round robin games it's uh full God, almost almost two weeks, you know, that they curl. Uh, and there's always a lot of talk about the format. Warren, with this, what do you say, Warren, about it with that many games? And also, Warren, I'm trying to figure out, you and I talked yesterday or the day before about how the playoffs work. So I want you to explain that to us, Warren, and I want you to tell us if you think that's the way it should be or should there be some changes. Well, I know the World Curling Federation is in a little bit of a corner right now with what they're doing, so I understand why right now they've got to have those 14 teams. I think the good thing is if you take a look at the world rankings of those countries, they are the top 14 countries. So I think that's a, a good thing because out of 67 nations, you are seeing the top 14, but as Kevin has mentioned, 13 round-robin games is just too many. That event virtually, uh, with the time allotted normally for people to get in and out of Calgary, if it wasn't for COVID, would still be two weeks, and, and that is just simply a way too long. And I know the challenge the World Curling Federation has, but they need to be working towards, in my, my opinion, a zonal system, or not a zonal, but a division. And uh, with 67 countries, um, they right now, I think, have about 40 of those nations do have a world ranking. So they could easily be into four 10-team divisions, or I suppose even stretch to 12. I think when you get down to round robins, 12 is about the maximum. And I think if you have to go to 14, you're at the point where you pretty much need to go into pools. And if this event was pooled, it probably could have been started Tuesday with uh, two pools of seven, a page playoff, and finished Sunday. So I think going forward, I'm not sure how they're going to bite into that one, but I think it's something that they, they certainly have to look at. I think, again, the final playoff, six teams qualify. So when you get six teams qualifying, the, the sixth team could have, in this event, five, even probably six losses. Your top team, if they're going really well, it's not going to happen probably this week, but you could go 13-0 and 0 or maybe 12-1. and 1. And uh, you're going to get a bye in the first round. So teams one and two get a bye. Then the next four teams will play off in the first round. Six plays three and four plays five. Sudden death. Mm -hmm. But what happens after that is, again, pretty... Uh, breath-stopping and the fact that the team that wins a 6-3 game will now against go, go against team number one in a sudden death as will the four versus five winner go against team number two. I, I look at that first place team having to face a team that maybe has six losses in that first round and sudden death as being pretty harsh. 
And uh, all you got to do is make one slip, and all of a sudden you've had a perfect week and it's gone. So I'm, I'm not sure if that is exactly the way to be moving in the future, but that's the way it is for now. And, of course, the winner of uh, that one versus six three and two versus four five then goes into the final, which uh, that end of it's fine. But I think as far as the way it's uh, handled up until then, pretty harsh for a team that goes through a round robin of 13 games playing very well and then is possibly faced with elimination against a team that's maybe had five or six losses. Although a sixth-place team in this round robin could certainly, it's looking like, could certainly be a team who could win the round robin. I mean, the, there looks like there's a bunch of parity there, certainly in the top seven or eight teams, isn't there? Well, there's no question that there's parity, especially in, the, like you say, about the top half of the group of 14, about seven or eight are near the top, and then, and, and then the rest drop off a little bit. Not a huge amount, but they do drop off a little bit. So I guess it's just sort of, in my opinion, what would you like the event to be? Because it's 10 days of curling with 14-team round robin and playoffs. Practice, though, started on the Tuesday. So the curling starts on Friday. They started practicing on Tuesday. Now, for teams to arrive, say, from, from Asia into Canada, you're looking at you know, many hours, depending on where they're from and where we are in Canada. Mm-hmm. But you're looking at around 10, at least 10 hours of time change. So you should come in one day per hour of time change. So certainly a, t- a team from Asia would want to come into Canada a week early. So now you're talking 10 days for the event, three days for practice, seven days early. So now you're at 20 days and then travel. So you're probably a 22-day event total. That's really tough for, for teams that are trying to play on the World Curling Tour and trying to expand their game. Like you can't, like that's almost a month. That seems like just too long. And, you know, many times over this last year, we've talked on the show about the Gen Zers and the Millennials not wanting things to be too long. Well, oh my goodness, 22 days. That's an eternity. Right. From the time the team leaves their home to the time they get back to their home. So I, I think over time, something has to be done. These events are certainly great. I just don't know if you can capture the audience worldwide for that many days. It's just so long and drawn out. And the curling's wonderful. But I, if indeed the World Curling Federation wants to keep many, many teams, if that's their plan and they want to have 14, 16, 18, whatever amount of teams in their Tier 1 World Championship, okay, well, so be it. Well, then we're going to have to go to two pools and, and get it done quicker. Cream will rise to the top anyway. There's no need to take two, three weeks to play an event. The cream will get to the top. Let's just get her done. Two pools of eight makes a lot of sense to me. Bring in two more teams and and battle it down in about five, six days. I certainly think that's the way to go in the future. I don't think there's an appetite to bring this championship down to 10 teams, which would be fantastic. I just don't think there's an appetite for that. So fine. Okay. Let's expand it to 16. Two pools of eight. Have at her. Uh, Warren, back to you. Uh, so we've got the 14 teams, the 13 games for the round robin, and we end up with the top six. One and two go right to a semi, uh, and then these other four teams have to play off. How would you change it, Warren, if you wanted to, the playoffs? Well, again, there's probably many ways you can look at it. It's going to depend very much on how you're going to structure the front end of it. So as Kevin suggests, if they're stuck with the 14 teams and they're going to feel that that's where they've got to go, Moving forward, then it's two pools, and the very simple thing with two pools is a page system playoff. So in the first round, one plays one, mm-hmm. winner goes to the final, the loser goes to the semifinal, and in the other first round game, two plays two, loser is out, winner goes to the semifinal. That's the, the fairest way of approaching it. A long time ago, the original world championships back into 
the 70s and even the 80s, it was also a fairly brutal playoff. And in fact, it was a 10-team round robin. And at that time, Canada was far more dominant than they are today. And uh, always the, the nightmare in everybody's uh, playing at a world level, if you got there, was in that first round of playoff after round robin, one played four and two played three. Again, it was sudden death. And uh, you could face the same situation. You were playing a team that had lost a number of games, but yet the pressure on one of those games, most of it's on you, less on them, is huge and very easy to stumble. And many Canadian teams did stumble in that system, in that semifinal game, I guess probably beyond about 1970. Uh, we were a victim of that, as, as were many others. Uh, very good. If you have an opinion on that, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us, insidecurling at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Curling Inside, Facebook at Inside Curling, and uh, we get a lot of emails, uh, and we'd love to answer them. Keep them short, okay? Keep them short, and you'll get a shot at us uh, reading them on air. Uh, before we talk about our Facebook group, uh, Warren, you wanted to uh, give a shout-out to a special curler who's having some difficulty health-wise. Yes, another uh, grand player from from the 70s and uh, 60s, I guess even into the 80s, Jim Ursel played his last briar in 1980, is Jim Ursel. Uh, Jim had a startling career in curling. Um, he came through Manitoba. He played in the Briar way back in 1962, was in a playoff. He was playing with Norm Hoke out of Manitoba. They were in a playoff with Richardson and Gervais, which they lost the first round. And then Jim was uh, moved to Montreal because he worked for Air Canada in their accounting department. And he became, for a period of seven years, represented the province of Quebec six times out of seven. And he actually won the Briar out of Quebec in 1977 when it was actually held in Montreal. And it was the first time that Quebec ever won the Briar. Great player. Um, I remember well when we won the Briar, it was Jim Ursel in Quebec that we played in the final round. And an unbelievable game was one of the lowest scoring games in, in Briar history for many, many years. So certainly I've had lots of experience myself with Jim. He moved back to Manitoba and uh, actually won two Canadian Senior Championships in 1990 and 1991. He also became a coach of renown and uh, ended up coaching his son, Bob, and uh, his brother, Mike, to the Canadian and World Junior Championship back in 1985. Great guy, great player. Uh, his son, Bob, actually, is in Calgary at the moment. He's the coach of the Japanese team. So uh, Bob has continued on in the footsteps of his father. He, too, was a great player in, in his time. And uh, we'd like to say, get well, Jim. We know you're going through some struggles out there, and uh, we're wishing you all the best. Did you ever curl, Kev? Were you around when when Jimmy Ursel? Did you guys ever uh, match up together? No, never. Not with uh, with Jim, but definitely uh, got to, to play Bob a lot. Bob's a really good friend of mine and uh, and an excellent coach. He actually coached at the Olympics for uh, South Korea in Pyeongchang, and now he's coaching Team Japan, and he's excellent. But no, I, I do not know his father. Unfortunately, it was just uh, before my time. I thought you were a little older, though, Kev, when I heard that. I said, well, Kev must <laughs> Thanks, have played Jim. with some of these guys in their 80s. <laughs> Uh, Warren, the Facebook group isn't getting any smaller. What's alive and well on our Facebook group? Our Facebook group is very alive and well, and we'd like to invite you, if you're not already a member, to join up and, and get in the discussions. Uh, we've got some very lively debates going at time, but just about everything to do with the events that are on or curling in general. The other thing I've started to do on a fairly regular basis is I put up uh, historic stories about players or, or events or things that have happened in the past so far, usually associated with the events that are on, but uh, as we move forward, we're going to continue doing that, and I hope that uh, people will come there, if nothing else, just to read some of these historic documents. Uh, we've got an email uh, from Chris Green, who has some ideas on how to better score points. <laughs> Allow me to read it. 
I'm a club curler, formerly at Leaside Curling Club. Moved to Oakville this year where I played one game before the shutdown. I wonder what you guys think about a rule idea I, I have uh, regarding blank ends. The rule is as follows. Blank end, score one for the team without hammer. This way the team with hammer can still retain it, but there is a limit and a price to pay. Further, for the team without hammer, every point you steal, add one so the scoring without hammer is as follows. I'm already lost on this, you guys, so you're going to have to break it down. <laughs> a blank is one point. Steal of one is two points. Steal of two is three points, etc., etc. The idea behind this reduces the advantage of having the hammer somewhat and perhaps levels the playing field a bit, make it more likely that both teams would be trying to score the same end. You could even consider taking a step further and instead of automatically giving the team that didn't score the hammer, give them the option, similar to doubles, where you can choose to have the hammer or try to steal for a premium number of points, i.e. if you need two points, maybe you think it's easier to steal one than get to two with hammer. Just an idea. I don't know. I didn't follow that, Kev. Can you can you break that down for us? <laughs> well, so you know, it's fun when we go down to down to the U.S. I just love going down to the U.S. and, and teaching curling. There's no way on earth we'd be able to teach people uh, that scoring system. Where yeah, you can have the hammer, but you can give it away. But you know, if you steal, you get more than one point. But you know, that'd be pretty tough. But you know what? I would vote for it for sure because I manufacture scoreboards, and with all that extra scoring. <laughs> That you'd run out of room on the traditional scoreboard. I'd have to sell every curling club in Canada a new scoreboard. So I'd be all in corporately. But when it comes to uh, a scoring system, wow, it would be. Uh, there could be some truth in it that it would it would add to scoring and so on and, and people trying to. But uh, wow, Chris has to be an engineer to figure out uh, the scoring system. But not everybody that curls is, and I think we'd have trouble getting the the rules across to the average club curler. I think. Warren, help everybody out. Is there any part of this that you like? I mean, you've always been a big proponent of getting the scoring up. What do you think about this? Well, I think along with Kevin, maybe it's got some merit, but it's far too complicated. And I think our problem with curling now is it's complicated enough with uh, all the little uh, variances that we have, particularly now going from four-person curling to mixed doubles. So I think in finding solutions, we've got to be looking at simplifying things rather than complicating them more. And, and again, I, I don't disagree with the fact that we have a, a challenge before us right now. And I watched a couple of games in the last two, two days, uh, one in particular, where this jockeying for, for having the hammer going into the last end is quite interesting to watch what's going on. And I think as Kevin and I have talked, the percentage of winning in the, in the last end if the score is close, if you don't have the hammer, is not very good. And so there's a whole issue here that uh, requires, I think, a lot of discussion and uh, maybe some revamping of some things as we move forward. But I'm afraid what Chris is suggesting, I think, is just too complicated to be able to try and uh, fit it in somewhere. Do they have to get rid of blank ends, Warren? I don't think you can eliminate blank ends, but I think there's a whole pile of other things that need to be considered with regard to, to how we deal with this. And maybe we like it the way it is, but I think as Kevin and I have talked, maybe the big issue that has to be dealt with under our current system without tweaking things too much is the tick area. And uh, maybe there's got to be a zone put in there where you can't tick a rock off uh, until the, the third throw or something of that nature. But again, we got to be careful that we don't overcomplicate things in something that's already pretty complicated. Okay, we got another email from James Dryberg with some ideas for mixed doubles. Quick thought regarding your recent discussion about mixed doubles and what happens if a player gets injured and has to withdraw. Uh, that was the case with, who was it, Darren Molding, Kev? That's right, Darren Molding, yes. 
him and uh, Joanne Courtney played together. There we go. James goes on to say at the world and Olympic level where you can't just fly in another player, uh, would it not make sense to have a player or coach as well as an alternate on the bench for each team? So, for example, if you have a male player coach and a female alternate or vice versa, you are covered in the case of injury or, and or illness. Then you have the flexibility of both sexes. I know there is an issue of cost and they try to minimize the number of accreditations at the Olympics, but can you imagine how amateur curling would look if there was a team that had to withdraw due to injury? This would be a solution that ensures that all games can be played and also if players are doubling up, the cost and number of accreditations would be at least the same or perhaps even less than if you had two separate teams. Cheers, he says from James. Warren, what do you think of that? Well, I guess, first of all, we seem to have this idea in curling that we can't have a situation where we simply can't feel the team. And probably the one sport that is similar to this is beach volleyball. And, of course, it's in the Olympics. So I was checking their rules. What happens when one of the players can no longer continue? And what happens is that simply they're out. Um, And any games that they would be scheduled to play, it's an elimination type of process. So it wouldn't impact a lot of games, but uh, simply they're no longer in the competition. So I think in I think something like mixed doubles, uh, that's simply, I think, the only solution you have. And if it's like happened uh, in the Canadian championship, I think any game that that team might have won prior to them being eliminated would have to go uh, in favor of their opponent. And that way it's even all along the way. There's nothing that's out of balance with it. I guess the other solution could be maybe they just continue with the one player. Uh, and certainly that they could continue with that, I guess, as long as, as they could. Might look kind of funny, though, as a solution, but I think they do have to come up with a solution because uh, I think what happened in Calgary where a team is eliminated after playing half their games and uh, three teams in that competition ended up getting a W out of it, and maybe if they'd beaten three teams before they were eliminated because of injury, somebody else would have got an L out of it. So I think uh, the solution is probably simply to say they have withdrawn and uh, they simply are not in existence as far as this competition is concerned. What do you mean when you say play just one? So mixed doubles is just one person? Yeah, they could throw five five stones. Oh, okay. I mean, we've got rules now in, in four-person curling. If you lose one player, you can play with three, but the lead player throws four stones. So it, it isn't that much different, quite frankly. Kev, what do you say about this if someone gets injured? Yeah, I don't uh, think this is a big problem at all. I don't see a problem in it. If uh, you go into the mixed doubles, you... Two players, one male, one female. If one somebody gets hurt and they're not able to play, you're you're just out of the competition. I think it's really simple. Um, at the Olympic level, there, yeah, there's lots of different sports where you, if you lose a player, you're just out. And I don't think it's a big deal at all. Um, now, some rules would have to be decided as to the previous games. If they, you know, if they drop out in the middle of the event, do you exnay all the games? Do you know what do you do about that? That can be decided and that can be voted on. But as far as the the team goes, they're just out. I just don't see it as being an issue at all. That team can no longer compete. Sorry. Right. Yeah, you're in a big event and you're at the world's biggest stage and, you know, you're trying your very best. And sometimes if you're, you know, you tweak your back or you pull a groin or whatever the case may be, you know, unfortunately, it's it's heartbreaking, but it is what it is. So no replacement at all? Say a team did travel with a couple of people. No replacement. No replacement at all. You can't allow it. No problem. You guys are firm on that. All right. I am actually very firm on it. Yes. You have to be. You, you can't. This is the problem with curling. We, we seem to have these, well, maybe, could be, should have. We have to become more definite on, on some of these things, and that would be one of them. No option. 
Well, maybe our guest will have something to say about that, but we certainly want to talk to him. Uh, I, I, I love this guy. Uh, all the years I did the briar, he, he spent lots of time in the patch. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about Mike Harris, and we're going to talk to him shortly. I'll be back in 45 seconds. Uh, Kevin, you didn't have many losses in your life, not too many, but you did to this guy in the Olympic trials, and we were talking about, uh, on the top of the show about our guest, and he joins us now. He's in the bubble with you, Kevin, uh, doing a bunch of commentary, and of course, I'm talking about Mike Harris. How are you, Mike? I'm good, Jim. A uh, long time no see or chat, whatever the case may be. Well, the last time I, t- I talked to you was probably at the Briar Patch. Likely, yes. You are a fantastic curler. Uh, you fall right into the fold of all our guests high performance, high ranking, very accomplished. You're a great curler, but you're not a very good singer. I'm an awful singer. And, and you made, you, you called me out. Uh, it's one of the uh, <laughs> worst, I wouldn't say worst moments, because the, the, you know, the, the curlers rallied around one of their fellow uh, athletes when you uh, were at the, was it the players in Calgary, wasn't it? I think so. And uh, no, no one was there to sing the national anthem. So Jim picks me out of the crowd and says, do you mind singing the national anthem? There was no music. There was no... <laughs> band there was nothing so I, I was like what am i supposed to do so i stood up and i started the first verse poorly and then the rest of the curlers jumped in which was nice but uh yeah yeah i i, ha- I really haven't forgiven you for that yet jim yep. that's okay uh, that was a long time ago the scar tissue is almost healed they were uh what i call my blurry days mike back then okay those <laughs> those days uh we know kevin and warren i've got lots they want to talk to you about you've been doing if we work backwards god you've been color commentating now and uh and doing curling as well as a bunch of coaching. And like I was saying, anyone who beat Kevin Martin, uh, okay, you look up and go, who? Who who was that team? <laughs> do you get the chance every time? Mike, do you walk in and go, hey, Kev, remember me? Yeah, I do. I do tell everyone except Kevin usually. So that's kind of how it works. <laughs> remember, I meet, I beat that guy once. But, uh, you know, I've been, I've been commentating now for 20 years, if you can believe it. So I've actually uh, called a few of Kevin's big games and uh, you know, Olympics and whatnot. So it's, uh, you know, honestly, a lot of fun working with Kevin over the last few years uh, on Sportsnet. So uh, we're, the rivalry has changed certainly and in, uh, into a friendship and we're happy about that. But, uh, you know, I, I basically stopped playing when I was 33, 34 years old. So I'm still, I'm, I'm still younger than Kevin, even though he right. kept curling for another 20 years after, after I, after I packed it in. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. <laughs> and you always will be younger, Mike, which is nice not by much, just just enough though. What's your take, Mike? Of course, you're down in Calgary uh, for the World Championships. What what do you think so far? We're about midway through uh, when we record. The real guesswork uh, as for commentators, you don't really know the form of anyone coming into this event. But it's typical. We've had like any event. There's always a couple of surprises, and uh, the team from the Russian Curling Federation has been a bit of a surprise, and uh, you know, a dean. Looked, I say early in the week wasn't quite himself, but uh, he was dominant. He curled ninety five percent as a team last night, so they kind of they found their mojo again. So uh, and then you know look at Botcher with that big big uh, surprising loss to Korea. So um, you know there's inconsistency seems to be the uh, the message so far. There's been a few surprises, but as uh, you guys were alluding to earlier, the cream usually rises to the top in these things, and it's a long round robin. So I, I expect come into the week, you know teams like Adine and Botcher and Moet and the likely leaders uh, are still going to be there at the end. 
We always have a lively discussion uh, that we've had since we started doing the podcast about about formats, about you know how the Scotties should be handled, how the Briars should be handled. Uh, this is big, 14 teams with the 13-game round robin. What's your take on it, Mike? Do you like the way it is? Would you make any changes? Yeah, I was listening in, uh, earlier, and you guys, uh, I think, hit the nail on the head. It's just play 13 games in a week and the lead time coming in for, you know, depending on where the worlds are, for the teams that have to travel, it just becomes a, a really – a difficult event to manage. I actually quite like the new format at the Briar with the 16 teams and the two pools and, and then a little crossover and you eliminate the four teams on the other, on, in the other pool that aren't, aren't that good. So I actually quite like the, the new format. If you're going to be inclusive, which I think the World Curling Federation has to be, I don't see them shrinking the field. So yeah, go to 16, have a couple pools and, and a warn you're having the two round robins with going right to a page. But even if you did the crossover, it shortens up the week a little bit. So I like the idea of pools and it's kind of the new normal, you know. I think uh, curling's expanding around the around the world. So, like I said, I, I can't see the field getting smaller, being uh, forward. Well, Mike, I, I you know I, I call you quite a lot when it comes to uh, if I'm doing events for uh, for say NBC and I, I need to figure out different teams and and how they're doing because you've been coaching now. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we got to talk about the world teams, you've taught definitely in China, yes, definitely in Scotland. Yeah. And Switzerland. Correct. Done all these. I'd like to talk to you about the differences of each because I think it's really, really interesting. It is for me. So I imagine it is for our listening audience as well. The differences when you're coaching in all these various uh, countries, and I probably missed a few. So, uh, but <laughs> definitely China versus like China's kind of new into curling and Scotland is far from new. Right. And, and Switzerland. So I guess the differences between those, Mike. Well, I mean, I, the differences are that there's not the depth of talent in China yet. <laughs> you know, that's the one thing. There's, uh, you know, we, we had a very small group of athletes to choose from when we tried to come to uh, putting teams together. Bing Yu Wang, who won the Olympic bronze medal in Vancouver and a world championship prior to that. So she, she really put curling on the map in China. And uh, she's certainly still part of the Olympic movement over there. But they still don't have the depth that Canada does. Um, certainly when you go to a country like Scotland and Switzerland, there's, there's definitely more athletes there just because the game has been around a little bit longer, but, uh, you know, those, those days are going to be changing in China in the next, next few years, you just get a feeling that, uh, they'll start to have more and more athletes to draw from and, and, uh, the commonality between these other countries and, and, uh, compared to what we do here is that they, they all have money to pour into coaching and, and, uh, training and they've got the best of the best facilities, best ice makers, best of everything, uh, you know, Scotland just built a brand new uh, national training center in Sterling, and uh, China's got uh, same thing. They've got a massive training fitness facility in uh, Beijing, and you know the games become global. And the Olympics obviously changed the world for for our sport, and and uh, you know, and same with Swiss. The Swiss, another another country that's got a, a lot of athletes to draw from. You know the women's program, especially in Switzerland. How many how many world champions have we seen from them in the last number of years? And uh, and the mixed doubles, their record in mixed doubles is is unbelievable, actually. So yeah, I mean the volume of of athletes. We, we're, we're spoiled here in Canada, where we've got you know just dozen teams, men's and women's, that are you know doing the work and getting things going. So the you know if you win a Canadian championship, you're you're battle hardened and you're ready to go. Where in the other countries, uh, less so, but you know they're certainly no lack of talent and uh, no lack of funding for the athletes who want to travel. And, you know, you're mentioning, Kevin, this 20-day trip for uh, a team from Asia coming to a world championship over here. 
monetarily, that's not an issue for them. You know, where, you know, Canadian Curling Association, I'm not sure what, where, where the, how the coffers are, but, you know, the, the idea of going over there three weeks or two weeks early before the event even begins, uh, I'm not sure that's, uh, A, realistic or B, financially viable for, for, for some countries. So, and certainly I know in the U.S., they're struggling with some funding over the last couple of seasons. So there's an advantage to a lot of these countries around the world where they do have, uh, they're able to put a lot of money towards a small number of athletes where here in Canada, they're, you're kind of spread a little bit thinner along the top. So what I was kind of trying to get out of you also, when it comes to the various countries, how they train, because in, in a lot of places tends to, it, it seems to me, it tends to be a lot of volume of throwing right, and maybe a little less work on, the actual technical of every throw, it's more quantity than quality. Right. And, and maybe, maybe a little more on, on the strategy of the game. Uh, I just want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, certainly with China, that was a, that was a big uh, battle I had with the, uh, the higher ups there. And that, you know, the mentality for many sports is that if you're not doing what you need to do, you need to just practice more. Right. And, you know, if you're not running fast enough, you need to train harder and, you know, if you're not throwing the ball far enough, you need to develop your strength and just keep going to the gym and, and all of those things. Where in curling, once you can throw the rock, you know, six second peels and you can throw a draw to the button, it certainly becomes a lot less urgent to just keep throwing rocks. And, and uh, you know, the answer for the Chinese program for many years was just throw more rocks. That was the, the solution. And, and curling's far more subtle than that at the top level. You, that'll get you wins against a certain level of competition, just being better at throwing the zone. But when you know, you know this, when you get to the top seven or eight teams in the world, everyone can throw the rock well. Everyone can throw the six second peel. Everyone can draw the button. So it comes down more to the finesse parts of the game, including strategy, as you said, Kevin. So spending time in the classroom is really, really important and, and seeing how you're supposed to play in certain situations. But again, it's, it's not a black and white solution in curling because every end of every game is slightly different. You know, it's you know, like in golf, you never get the same lie twice. Even though you hit ball after ball after ball, you still have to be out there and playing the top teams in the world. And like, like I said, uh, Canadian teams, the, the big advantage Canadian teams have is that they're battle-hardened uh, when they go to a, an event like the World Championship. They've had to beat a lot of very good teams on the way, and they've seen difficult situations where most of the other countries, they either appoint their teams or they only have one other team to beat the disadvantage we might have here where we're not you know, full-time curlers per se, you know, we make up for in the fact that, uh, you know, the Canadian athletes have, have been through the ringer, so to speak, to win their championship. So, you know, it was a, it was a hard fought battle and, and I'm not hundred percent sure that they've overcome that in China where they still, the solution still seems to be to throw a lot of rocks. Uh, this is a very difficult season to judge any of that stuff though, because I think every team coming in here, to the world championships uh, really hasn't played a whole lot. And, you know, that, that week that Brendan Botcher had at the prior, that's a big advantage when it comes to you know, competitive preparation, you know, but you and I were discussing this between games yesterday that had, had Brendan come here without the benefit of having played in the prior, who knows what, <laughs> what record they're going to have. So I always kind of try to steer the teams more towards, quality versus quantity to your point and uh, you know it's not it's not important to throw a thousand rocks but i'd rather have them throw you know 10 rocks where we talk about the situation and you know full swing i know you always practice with your sweepers and every rock you threw in practice wasn't you're not just pitching rocks down the sheet you're you're throwing rocks with meaning and i i do the same when i was teaching golf you know it's important to have meaningful 
swings. Make a meaningful swing on the driving range. Don't just stand up there and, and hit balls. That, that really doesn't do anyone any good. Let's talk a bit about uh, how teams and players are brought up through the system, specifically with Switzerland, I think, because I look here in Canada, we've got a lot of good young players coming up, but I'm not sure we are taking an approach that's going to bring them into the foray in a manner that we need to as quickly as we need to. And I know we've talked to a lot of them. They seem to think in some cases we need a, a U23, a U24 championship, maybe even U25 to help bridge the current situation between juniors and adult curling. What happens in Switzerland? First of all, how do they identify the talent of somebody coming up? And then what do they do with them? How do they, how do they get them prepared to be able to become world-class athletes? Well, I can't speak directly to that, Warren, as I, I'm not 100% sure. But I know certainly with the Scottish program, once you're in the juniors and you've been identified as the high-performance athlete, the biggest thing is that they're able to support a small number of uh, full-time athletes. And that's that part of that will be identifying successful juniors. Bruce Mowat's a perfect example of that, where you know they won a World Juniors and World University Games. And, and once... Um, the Olympics were over in Pyeongchang. They asked all the athletes in Scotland to kind of change teams and mix things up, including Bruce Mowat, who was a world junior champion, and and they were able to form the team they have now. But the real the real key is that Bruce didn't have to worry about getting a job, you know, finding his way at you know age twenty one, twenty two, twenty three years of of age. Uh, most athletes uh, have to make that life choice. You know, are you gonna are you gonna pursue your education? You know, the thought of pursuing uh, a career in curling in Canada, it just really isn't a, a viable option. Like I said, the, the challenge for Curling Canada is there's so many juniors that you could say could fit into that program. So you're spreading X number of dollars very thinly across the top uh, number of teams. And I don't know that, you know, having a U23 or U25 for me doesn't really answer the needs of what <laughs> you need to get to be successful at the top world level you still have to play against top teams you know kevin cooey's 46 years old and you know to say you're going to get the experience at a u23 event that's going to prepare you for a, a men's world championship i don't think that's a, a reasonable solution so i like the idea of being able to figure out a way to provide people like tyler tardy a chance to play at a at a high level without a huge financial risk but uh, you know like <laughs> i'm having this conversation with, with, with my daughter right now it's about to go to university and she wants to keep curling, but uh, you know, I, I'd rather her get her education and and find a way in, in the in the real world. And then you know, for Canadians, a lot of times that's uh, curling's in addition to what else you do in your life. And I think for a lot of the other countries, they are able to fund them to a point where you know the younger athletes don't have to worry about they said don't have to worry about getting a job. And and it all goes back to you know your schooling being inexpensive or or covered by your national sports federation. All of those things. So there's a lot of there's a complicated question, I think, Warren. But um, at the end of the day, it's providing the young athletes an opportunity without without the financial risk that that comes with uh, you know being a competitive curler in Canada. Mike, when you're talking about teams over in Asia and and you've you've coached a lot of teams from other countries, how do they determine their national champion, Mike? Is is there a bunch of competition? Well, you know, everyone's well aware here, right? There's all right. There's, there's curling every weekend. How does it work over there? For example, in China. Well, in China, they have, they do have a national. There actually is a big national championship. That doesn't necessarily mean you get to go to the world championship. So they have they do have clubs. Uh, Harbin is a is a, a city north of Beijing, and they've got a good curling community there. And there's three or four uh, curling communities around the country that do send teams to their national championship. But 
it's only the athletes that have been identified in the high performance program that are able to go to the world championship. And so what, what happens there, if you happen to win the national championship, then they kind of pick you out. Okay. These are the, you know, here's four athletes that need to be brought into the national team program. But, and it's very rare, of course, that someone would come in and win without, uh, you know, the coaches knowing who they are, but certainly when the, when the championship was on, we were there and scouting, scouting different athletes. So, um, you know, the third for the team, team China here at this event was skipping about their third or fourth ranked team a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they made a change. Uh, one of their, one of their top players ever to play, uh, Bod Dexin, who, uh, played on the, uh, in the Olympics in Sochi, lost the, lost the bronze medal game. Fantastic player uh, and played mixed doubles in Pyeongchang. He left the program. He was on this uh, men's team and, and, uh, that left a big gap because he's, you know, I think he was the best player they had. And uh, so they brought uh, they brought a new third in this year. So, uh, but it's a long winded answer to your question is that they they generally just uh, nominate a team to go to the world championships or to the worlds, depending on you know if they have two very good evenly matched teams, they'll let them play off. But for the most part, they don't they don't have the depth that we have here in Canada. And the Swiss and Scots they they do a playoff if again if there's top teams, but. Um, you know, you, we know Eve Muirhead is going to be representing Scotland at the Olympics, and we know that Bruce Mullet will be going as well. Um, even though they've got a couple of other teams, you know, Ross Patterson won a Grand Slam event a couple of years ago, so that's a very good team. But uh, they're going to nominate their their athletes to go. So earlier in the interview here, you had mentioned about curling teams spending time in the classroom. Uh, that's the first time I've heard that. What's that all about, Mike? Yeah, they're watching video of, of uh, the great Kevin Martin, you know, making uh, making decisions uh, down the stretch in important games <laughs> uh, or in any high any high caliber teams. I think it just, their strategy is very basic. If they, if they go by the textbook, and uh, Kevin can attest to this, yes, when you don't have last rock, you try to play it up the middle. And when you do have last rock, you want to throw corner guards. But the game is far more subtle than that. So you're trying to, you're trying to teach them to how to react to misses and makes and, and, uh, but that's far easier said than done. You know, yes, you can watch it videotape after videotape of uh, big important games. And hopefully you, you do pick up uh, a few things, but at the end of the day, you know, you learn far more. It's like any sport. You learn far more from your losses and in, in tough situations than you do from uh, watching it in uh, on a video screen. So all these teams have these massive debriefs after, uh, wins and losses and we we caught a little bit of it yesterday in the China was down 8-1 at the break and you know and Soren Gron who's coaching the team now says to the guys at the fifth well this game's lost I don't really know what to tell you you know try to get some momentum in for this, the next one I said I'm not sure that's the answer you want to hear as an athlete but at the same time you know as, as a coach you know by the time you get to an, a championship you can't really do a whole lot to change the way the game is played in terms of uh, strategy and how to react to things. You can't learn here. So like I said, the difficulty this season, and I know for China, especially who they're putting so much pressure on their athletes to perform well at the Olympics in 10 months, this is a big year to have gone by without playing any high caliber teams. They would have been over here in North America playing every weekend for the whole season and they would have learned so much uh, playing these top teams. And now, you know, kind of the whole year has gone by and their back is going to be against the wall uh, when they come to play in their home Olympics. So, And they do feel the pressure, I can tell you. I was, I was talking to Kevin about this yesterday, that the athletes are well taken care of. They're paid for for their time and the, the amount of practice they put in. But there's a huge expectation to perform well, especially at home. And um, I know they're starting to feel it. 
Let's uh, shift gears a bit and ask a question in a little different direction. And this is something we've been tossing around a lot. And even this week, you're noticing again, it's becoming seemingly more difficult to score. Blank ends have become a topic of discussion again. And I noticed in a couple of games that have been played this week that I've watched the jockeying going on in the last two or three ends to determine who's going to have that final stone at the 10th end is quite remarkable. So Kevin and I have talked a lot about this and get your opinion of uh, maybe the cure to whole, this whole problem is to create a tick zone out in front of the circles, whatever that is, whether it's down each side of center for a period of uh, a few feet and uh, uh, an area that maybe you can't remove a rock from until maybe you get into third stones um, could maybe begin to deal with this issue. What are your thoughts on all that? Well, I guess I have a couple of thoughts. One is, yeah, I think the tick zone uh, will become important, you know, after the next Olympic cycle. I think it's certainly worth taking a look at. I know one of our slams this uh, upcoming week, we're gonna we're gonna try a no tick zone. Uh, but I think there has to be a bit of skill to the team throwing the guard. I don't want to have like a four foot wide strip where you can't remove a stone. I think that makes it too easy on the team that's trailing. I think there should be some skill, whether it's uh, you know a spot on the center line or just touch the center line. I think is also quite easy. I'd like to. I would like to see a couple of spots along the center line. If they can manage to throw their guard on this spot, you can't touch it. And whether it's to the third zones or seconds, I don't think that's all that critical. But you know, certainly early in games when the games are low scoring, you know, the teams just aren't willing to dance early. They're they're throwing rocks in the rings and they're hitting it out and. You know, there's there's no there's no real solution for that. But if both teams are willing to mix it up, which we've seen here uh, a few games, we had a game uh, against Switzerland against Italy. Uh, it was four three, very low scoring, but there was ten rocks in play every end. It seemed uh, until until third stones at least. So um, you know, the teams both have to be willing to try. But I, I would like to see yes, I would like to see a no tick zone, but I would like to see a little skill required from the team that's trailing to earn the right to not allow the opponents to, to tick the stone out of the way. So um, I think there's a happy combination in there somewhere because when you're, when you're the team that's ahead and you've earned that hammer in the eighth end or whatever it happens to be, or sixth end, depending on the length of the game, I still think you've earned that right to, to be ahead and in control of the game and, and to let the team back in easily. I don't think that's uh, the right solution, but uh, I, I, I'd be definitely be game for, yeah, trying a no-tick zone of some sort, for sure. When it comes to uh, this week, um, Team Switzerland uh, playing Canada, actually, they got up a little bit early and uh, actually early in the game started to tick off rocks. So, you know, it makes it really tough on the fans um, watching mm -hmm. on television because there's nothing around. But I do want to switch. I, just, I know uh, we're taking a lot of your time here, Mike, and really appreciate it. But I do want to get into the broadcasting part of it because you've done a lot of Olympic games. And I know a lot of people... Uh, listening would be interested on getting behind the scenes a little bit. I know you started broadcasting even back with the great, uh, one of the best play-by-play -play guys ever in uh, Don Whitman, of course. And uh, and then I'd like to hear a little bit about him because he's, just, he's such a famous person. And then a little bit about a, like a daily schedule in Olympic Games. You've always worked for CBC. I'd love to hear what, what like from we wake, wake up in the morning, what happens at Olympic Games? I, I'd love to hear that. But, you know, Don Whitman became a really good friend yeah. of yours. I'd love to hear about him because, uh, you know, when it comes to broadcasters, he's one of the best. Uh, the late, great Don Whitman was, uh, we were, let's say we, Joan and Joan McCusker and I were very fortunate to to work with Don in the sense that he was a fantastic mentor to us. You know, he he and uh, Don Duguid, who worked together for many, many years, were, were best of friends. And when uh, Don Duguid 
uh, was let go and, and uh, we were brought in. It, I think it could have been easy for Wit to, you know, begrudge us a little for taking taking his uh, his friend's job sort of thing. So, I mean, no, it was no fault of ours, of course. And uh, and Don, Don was, uh, I was, I, I felt the same way about Don as, as the way you're talking now. Like he was such a, the voice, the famous voice he had from uh, so many Olympics and and uh, hockey and great cups and everything else. So we, it was, it was just great honor to work with Don and, and he, he shepherded us very nicely. And, and one of, one of the f- things I, I, you know, you know me, I like to kind of joke around a little bit in the booth and he says, uh, you know, don't try to be funny. You know, you're not funny. Even if you think you're funny, you're not funny. And of course, <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I, I continually tried to prove him wrong along those lines. And he always kind of looked at me and shake his head when I made a little joke in the booth, but uh, it was great to work with. And, you know, the Olympics uh, I've worked at six Olympics. If you can imagine, I was at, I was in Rio as well. So I've worked five games and participated in one and two stories. One, one is uh, when Joan and I were in Salt Lake uh, covering you, Kevin and, and uh, Kelly Law, having participated in the previous games as athletes, we're kind of a little disappointed, kind of just, you, you still want to be out there on the ice. And uh, one of the crew came up to us and he could sense that our energy wasn't quite there. And he says, you have to remember the Olympics isn't just the Olympics for the athletes. The Olympics is the Olympics for the broadcasters. The Olympics is the Olympics for the stats guys, the the guy pulling the cables, the guy setting up the cameras, the, you know, the handhelds and all the, all the people that are working there are the best in the business at their job. And it really kind of put things into perspective for, and instead of, you know, lamenting the fact that I wasn't on the ice, I kind of embraced the fact that this is an, a wonderful opportunity. And, and of course, at the Olympics, it speaks to a whole new audience, which is, which is wonderful. Um, but as the schedule goes, uh, typically, Salt Lake was a little different because we had our own car and we had a, you know, there was, it wasn't that difficult to get around, but uh, I can tell you the last two or three games, we would get up at seven in the morning and you get the shuttle to go to the rink for eight or eight 30 and the games at nine typically. So with CBC, we would do uh, about a 30 minutes before the game, we would do a, you know, seven or eight minute hit, you know, Ron McLean would throw to the curling venue and Don and I and Joan would talk about the upcoming match, get off the air at three hour games. We're off the air at 12. Then we have to do about a seven or eight minute recap for their evening show. So we're off, you know, we don't really finish that until about 1230-ish, quarter to one. And then the next game's at two. So if you, again, if you think of that schedule, we whip over, have lunch somewhere for about 15 or 20 minutes, and then go back to the venue for half hour before the game plan, repeat. And we do that every day. So from the time the mixed doubles started in Pyeongchang until the last day of competition, um, it was 7 a.m. until we would get back to the hotel about 11 p.m. at night. So it's not glamorous work, but it's, it's lengthy, it's rewarding, it's, it's, it's a ton of work. Staying healthy is, is difficult. You know, you're working on about five hours sleep for about 17 days in a row. It's a lot, but I'd rather be there than not be there. So, so I love it. I love going to the Olympics and, and uh, I'm looking for, I know even in uh, Beijing, the mixed double starts even earlier. So it's going to be even a couple of extra days of, of those full days. And you know, we didn't have the uh, two-game limit that some of the cushy NBC jobs had that uh, <laughs> Kevin Martin can speak to. But uh, but uh, we, we're, we're kind of all day every day at the Olympic Games. And uh, like I said, I love it. And uh, I, I'm hoping I can just do more and more of them because uh, it's a privilege to bring you know, the, the performances of our Canadian athletes to the country. And uh, you know, I said curling draws an audience like none other. 
um, unless we're kind of we're in the gold medal hockey game. Um, usually curling is the one that, that draws the, the biggest crowd. You know, Kevin in Vancouver, when you won your gold medal, I, you know, I think 10 or 12 million people tuned in, something crazy. It's a lot of work, but uh, but I love it. You know what? Full disclosure, Jimmy, full disclosure about the NBC. So going back to the Olympics in Sochi 2014, I, I covered it with NBC and we all did like you three games a day, but a whole bunch of us got sick because it was so many hours. It was just, you know, 16 hour days uh, every day for almost a month. And we, and we just had a whole bunch of people just sort of drop off. We didn't, <laughs> you just couldn't do it. And uh, so this last Olympics in Pyeongchang, they actually brought a rule in, to your point, uh, two games a day max, and brought in another uh, a group into uh, Stanford. So I was in Pyeongchang, but we had other groups calling games because of trying to not get anybody just too fatigued. And actually, we only had one sickness of the whole crew of us. A guy named Robbie from San Francisco got a food poisoning or something. But I was the only person in the entire Olympics for the entire month that got sick once they made that change. So that, to your point, Mike, it, yeah, it, you're right. It, they didn't do three games a day this time, like uh, in Sochi, but it worked. We didn't lose any man hours to sickness, which matters in a group of, oh, it would be so many staff that go to an Olympic Games for NBC or CBC. So I just want to clear that up because there is reasons for that. Well, for someone your age, they can't risk that, Kevin. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, touche. What people may not know about you, Mike, and I want to ask you uh, as we wrap up, uh, your golf career. I know you've been a pro for a long time. You talk about teaching golf. Are you, are you still active as a golfer and pro? I'm still doing a bit of teaching. I, I left the uh, kind of the golf club industry, working at a, at a, at a club uh, in Toronto uh, in 2012. So I started. Mm-hmm. that's when I started my coaching career over in Switzerland and Whatnot. I thought I'd try to make a make a go of it in in uh, in one sport instead of two. But I'm still a member of the PGA, and and I do teach a bit. But uh, I'm now uh, I've turned to the dark side. I'm now a member of White Girl Golf Adventure Club, and uh, and uh, I'm I'm enjoying not having to uh, deal with members like me. Well, maybe you can beat Mark Brewer, Whiteville. <laughs> yeah, Brew. Yeah, he's a uh, he's he's still pretty good. Uh, world, a former world amateur. Uh, competitor for Canada. You know, he, he came second at the world amateur. He beat the likes of Jesper Parnovic, Colin Montgomery and whatnot. So I'm not like, I'm not likely to knock him off. He's our, uh, seems to be our perennial club champion. Why, why are so many, before you go, Warren and I were talking yesterday, why are so many curlers good golfers? I don't know what the, I mean, for me, the reason I got into the golf business was because I curled, you know, it, I knew that I had my winters free to curl and, you know, Wayne Madaw is probably similar as well. Um, long time and, and honestly it's uh i think once you kind of have the sporting bug if you're you know it was just a question for me and uh of trying to find a, a career that i was going to enjoy and and i did for you know i was a head pro for 20 25 years uh including out here in calgary at bamp springs so you know i had a great career and uh but it, it really provided me uh, an opportunity to curl which is <laughs> the hidden motivation between behind getting into the golf business uh, Mike, great job. Great career. Congratulations on, on everything you've done and uh, and good luck the rest of the, the bubble. Uh, nice to catch up with you guys. It's uh, It'd be nice to see you in person. And uh, I know Warren once in a while drops by Toronto and uh, has, a game, has a game of golf. So uh, we'll try to catch up one of these days. Someday. <laughs> yes, someday. Exactly. Take it easy, Mike. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, gentlemen. Love Mike Harris. Uh, of course, Kev, you're gonna you're gonna be working with him through the rest of the week. 
tell us what's happening with slam events, Kevin, after this. Yeah, so I'm not working with Mike just for this week. Uh, then next week, we have the Champions Cup into the bubble, and then the Players' Championship into the bubble. And then uh, I'll also be working with Mike at the Women's World Championships after that. So uh, we've got another uh, five weeks in the uh, in the bubble with curling action and really looking forward to the Champions Cup and players coming in. And the reason isn't so much on the men's side because almost all the top men's teams have either, either been in the Briar, which we've seen, or in the men's worlds. Yannick Schwaller from Switzerland, I believe, is the only team that we haven't seen out of the men's side. But on the women's side, uh, other than the Scotties, of course, all the international flavor, which is huge, uh, of course. Tons of teams coming in on the women's slams, and nobody's seen them in a very long time. So I'm really excited about that. If you're a fan of curling, you've got to be loving these last month, six weeks, and then, and then going forward, you know. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, a bunch of people, of course, all the time. Thanks, Almo, back in the Sportsnet studio for doing this. Uh, also, we've been having some Zoom meetings that, that people love, and we invite you uh, to reach out to us if you'd like to do a Zoom call with Kevin and Warren at your club. Uh, you can just email us, insidecurling uh, at gmail.com, and uh, we, we'd love to do that for you. Please keep in mind we're doing this on a limited basis to see how it goes, and if if there's something we sh- you want to consider for us to talk about that? It'd be great. So uh, we'd love to do that. We keep it to about an hour. Uh, and again, uh, we've had a few people say, "I'd love to do a Zoom call with you guys," but it's only an individual. We said, "No, <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. We'd love to do it with your club." Also, Rod Paulson and his company, Inhouse Strategies, uh, he's doing terrific work on our social media, as you can well see. Uh, thanks a lot to Rod. Uh, we really, we really appreciate that. And of course, the producers, Warren Hansen, you're a producer of the show. And Andrew and uh, Amal is there with us from Sportsnet, as well as Jonathan Brazo. We thank all those people. So, boys, that's a wrap. Uh, Kevin, I'll tell you what. I would love to isolate the week of the Masters so no one could bug me. So you get to watch some great golf near the end of the week. Who are you picking, Kev, for the Masters? Well, Jordan Spieth has been solid week after week after week lately. I've got to pick him. Warren, who's your pick? Well, I guess I'd go with Kevin to some degree. I, I would have to think Dustin Johnson. I would give him the uh, the leg up being the defending champion that was just played in November. And so I think he, he should have a good shot. He hasn't been probably playing that well lately, but I think the Masters motivates a lot of people. So I think he'll be close. Uh, not because I'm Canadian, but my sleeper pick is Corey Connors. He's playing, he's playing pretty well. So, Boys, that's another great show in the books. Uh, we appreciate everyone for listening. Follow us. Uh, on, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We're, we're all over the joint, and uh, we, we'd love to hear from you and get your comments on the show or other things, and, and we'll try and read them on the show. Boys, take it easy. Uh, Warren, thanks a lot, and thank you, Kevin. Uh, you've been listening to another episode of Insight Group. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks, Jim. Thanks, boys. Thanks, boys.